So Jesus is not your ordinary ruler of the world, and we're going to find out why from John chapter 12. Plus, what on earth is going on with the rulers in Australia? We're going to look at the schmozzle that is Australian politics. We're going to ask what Christians should think about our government today. My name is Tom Abib, and you're listening to The Word Grows. Okay, so today uh, we're slowing down a little bit uh, in John's Gospel, and we're just going to have a look at the first 16 verses of chapter 12, and we're just going to jump straight in. We're asking today, what sort of a king is Jesus? And we're going to see that Jesus is a very, very, very different king uh, to the sort of kings or rulers that we get in the world. Now, John chapter 12 really kind of begins to set the stage for the next few chapters, what we call the Upper Room Discourse, that is, the Last Supper. And John devotes pretty much half of his gospel, at least a third of his gospel, uh, to just a few hours before Jesus' death, where Jesus gives this kind of intense teaching to his disciples. And there seems to be kind of two strands, two questions, two ideas that are being wrestled with throughout these chapters. Uh, The first is Jesus' death. Uh, We we saw uh, in our episode, in our last episode, that yes, Jesus has come to bring life, resurrection life, that's what we see with Lazarus, Lazarus, but it comes through his death. And this whole idea of Jesus and how he's come to die really starts getting unpacked in these next few chapters. Jesus is the Messiah, he's the promised king of the world, he's the son of man, he's the judge of the earth, he's the son of God, he's he's one with the father, co-equal with the father. He's the creator. He's the giver of life and light. He's God himself, and he's about to be crucified. And this shocking revelation really shapes the rest of Jesus' teaching in this gospel. So in the first half of John, uh, if, you, if you think of that as the, that, that was all about Jesus, the one who will give us life. Second half of John is really all about how Jesus will give us life through his death. And this second half of John is really unpacking how his death will achieve life for us, but it will also help to unpack what this teaches us about the sort of life that we have now as disciples of Jesus. See, what does following Jesus look like if Jesus dies on the cross? Uh, And that's a big theme that gets unpacked uh, in these next few chapters. Jesus has come to die to give us life. And that's going to shape our discipleship as well. Now, another theme that we're going to pick up uh, in the next few chapters is that Jesus, uh, because he's going to die and then he'll rise again and he'll return back to the Father, he's not going to be around much longer. He's going away. He's already hinted at that. Chapter 7, he told the Pharisees he's only going to be with them a short time. Then he's going back to the one who sent him, going back to the Father. Chapter 9, Jesus tells his disciples that while he's in the world, he is a light of the world but night time is coming. Um, that is, there will be a time when his disciples are going to have to follow him without him physically being there anymore. They're not going to be able to see him. They're not going to be able to hear him. They're not going to be able to touch him. And that's going to make following him really, really hard. Now, uh, as disciples of Jesus ourselves, we forget. We, we forget because this is our total experience of Jesus. We have always had to follow Jesus without being able to see him or hear him or touch him. Um, but imagine what it was like for those disciples uh, who the whole time he was there with them, they were following him. And now he's saying, I'm going to go away, but you still need to follow me. 
And that's why I think these next few chapters are going to be so incredibly helpful for us because we can't see Jesus. He's not physically here. And in an age of materialism, an age of naturalism, this so-called you know, scientific age where what is true is judged purely on what I can see and smell and touch, in a world like that, it is really, really, really hard to follow Jesus when he's not physically here with us. And the next few chapters are all about preparing disciples for following him when he goes away. So that's going to be really helpful. But we won't get to that uh, in this episode. This episode, I will really be picking up on that first theme of the fact that Jesus is the king. He's the ruler of the world, but he's come to die. And it's this strange paradox that starts to get unpacked in this chapter. We're, We're so used to it as Christians. We're so used to the fact that, yeah, Jesus is king and he died on the cross. But For the first readers of this gospel, that would have seemed so foreign, so strange. A a crucified king. There is is no such thing. That that doesn't exist until we read John's gospel. And and we see this paradox being introduced uh, in the first 16 verses in two really strange scenes uh, that I want to unpack. Uh, the first is Mary pouring perfume on Jesus' feet, and the second is Jesus' so-called uh, triumphant entry uh, into Jerusalem. So let, let's have a look at both of these scenes. First of all, Mary uh, pouring perfume on Jesus' feet and then wiping it with her hair. Uh, and this is really a scene of deep devotion, Okay, uh, we're told that Jesus was having dinner with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Now, just let that sink in for a second. Lazarus was there, okay? In the last chapter, he just came back from the dead. And now they're all sitting down for a nice family dinner with Jesus. You, you've got to picture that scene, right? Imagine the emotions. Imagine the relief, the, the disbelief. Here's my brother, he was dead, he's alive again, and the person who brought him back from the dead is sitting with us as well. Um, You know, when when somebody saves the life of someone close to you, maybe a husband or a wife or a child, you become incredibly devoted to that person. Imagine if your husband or your wife or your child or your brother, if they died, you went to the funeral, and at the funeral someone came and brought them back to life again. You you would never leave that person's side again. And and that's what we see with Mary. She now has a deep devotion to Jesus. And and so what does she do? She tries to honor him. Uh, She honors him by pouring this incredibly expensive perfume. Um, We're told later by Judas, this cost a year's wages. Okay, think like I don't know what your wage is, but let's average it out to maybe 60000 I think that's probably lowballing it, but say 60000 a year. Okay, imagine dropping sixty grand worth of perfume on someone's feet just to honour them. And that, that is what Mary does. That is her deep devotion to Jesus and how much she honours Jesus, that she pours this perfume and then what does she do she she humbles herself she sees jesus as so much higher than her so much greater than her so much more important than her what does she do she humbles herself by wiping his feet with her hair it it kind of seems like a weird almost gross picture to us but it is a deeply costly 
and and humbling way to honor Jesus and to show how valuable Jesus is to her. Now that's contrasted with Judas. Uh, we haven't heard much about Judas yet. We we get a bit of a mention uh, in John six uh, about how Judas is a devil, but he's not named. John has to give us the heads up that Jesus was talking about Judas Iscariot. But up until now, we haven't really heard about Judas. And here he is introduced. And what do we see? Who well, is not devoted to Jesus? He's devoted to money. Uh, he's a thief. He's a liar because he loves money. And he hides this with a concern for the poor. He says, oh, you, you should have sold that perfume and then we could have given the money to the poor, but that's just because he wanted to embezzle the money he's been taking a bit for himself. And so there's a real contrast there. You've got Mary, deep devotion to honor Jesus, and then Judas, who's devoted to money. But then Jesus says something really shocking in verse 7. Uh, this is his defense of Mary. He says, leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. And that totally turns on its head what we actually thought we were seeing in this scene. See, we thought that Mary was simply honouring Jesus for the great, wonderful, life-giving king that he is, what she was actually doing was preparing him for his death. Now, I don't think Mary even knew this. There's nothing to suggest that she did. I think she was doing more than she knew. But Jesus saw the significance of this. And what we get here is the start of a marrying of two ideas. Jesus is honored, yes, but in kind of a strange way. The honor is going to be found in his death. The glory will be found in his crucifixion. And Jesus, uh, and, and John as well, has already been playing with this paradox all the way through John's gospel. Because almost every time that Jesus has made a reference to his death, he's described it as the time when he will be lifted up. Now, when we hear that, we think die on the cross. Um, but the Greek word for lifted up, really, most often it would have been understood as meaning exalted. We, we use that as well. If you lift someone up, you're exalting them. And so when Jesus says, I'll be lifted up, most people would have heard that as I'll be exalted. But of course, what Jesus is talking about is, I'll be crucified. And what's going on here is a play on words that goes all throughout the gospel, because both are actually true. See, Jesus is exalted when he's lifted up on the cross. His glory is in his crucifixion. And this anointing that we have of Jesus here, this honoring of him with oil, is actually a preparing him for burial. Okay, his honor is found in his death. And that's what's going on with this scene, this marrying of two ideas. That's the first scene. Uh, but in the second scene, we get a similar uh, confused kind of moment where Jesus enters into Jerusalem. Uh, the great crowd has come to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. And they come to Jesus and they shout out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Now, we've already heard before that the crowd wanted to make Jesus king by force. Okay, that was back in John chapter 6. And Jesus at the time, he withdrew from them. He didn't let them make him king. Why? Well, because they don't actually get what sort of a king he is. 
Now, what they actually cry out that's, is from a psalm. They're, they're crying out a psalm, Psalm 118. And it's a really, really interesting psalm. Because on the one hand, it is a victorious psalm. Okay, verse 6 of Psalm 118, The Lord is with me, he is my helper. I look in triumph on my enemies. Or verse 10, All the nations surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord I cut them down. See, it's this picture of this great victory in Psalm 118, and the crowds take these words upon their lips because they see Jesus as this political Messiah who's going to drive out the nations, who's going to have triumph over enemies. And that's actually exactly why the Jewish council um, decided to kill Jesus uh, in the previous chapter, chapter 11, right? They, they agreed to put Jesus to death. Why? Because they were scared that he was going to start a rebellion against the Romans and the Romans would come back and crush him and destroy the city and the temple. And so when the crowd shout out, Hosanna, which uh, means save now, save us now, they're actually crying out for a political salvation. Uh, just as a bit of an aside, I, I kind of feel like it's a bit ironic because often when we sing that song, you know that song Hosanna at church, um, I don't mind the song that much, it's a fine song, but I think it's a bit odd uh, when people sing it because most people don't understand Hebrew and so most people don't actually know what they're singing when they sing Hosanna. Uh, we're singing save us now, that's what Hosanna means. Um, but I wonder, because we don't actually know what these words mean, do we actually know what we're saying? Or are we like the crowds crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, um, save us now? Do we actually get what sort of a king we're crying out to and what sort of a salvation we're crying out for? Uh, do we sing it triumphantly thinking, yes, we're going to go out there and conquer the world? Or do we sing it understanding that we follow a crucified saviour and that the salvation that he's come to bring is not just some salvation of making our life better or some salvation of changing the world. It's a salvation from our sins that comes through his death on the cross. Um, anyway, something to think about. But uh, the, the crowd clearly doesn't get it. And they sing out Hosanna, looking for a king to rescue them from the Romans by bringing military victory over their enemies, rather than a king who will rescue them from their sins by dying a humiliating death on the cross. This is why I said Psalm 118 is such an interesting psalm, because the verses immediately before the verse that the crowd cries out uh, in Psalm 118, verses 22 to 24, this is what they say. This is Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, that's really interesting because that verse where it says the stone the builders reject has become the cornerstone, that gets picked up quite a bit in the New Testament to help explain the rejection of Jesus. See, Jesus is the rejected stone, and yet he is the way through which God is going to build his kingdom. In other words, it's not going to be through some military conquest of a powerful ruler that God builds his kingdom. No, it will be through the rejected stone, through the crucified Messiah, that's where true victory will come from. That's where true salvation will come from. And so again, the crowds are actually shouting more than they know. Jesus has entered Jerusalem as the king of Israel. They're absolutely right. He is the king. He's just not the sort of king that they think. He's not the sort of king that they want. And he has entered Jerusalem to save, to save now, Hosanna. But not the sort of salvation that they think, not the sort of salvation that they want. 
And, and Jesus actually makes this claim himself very clearly for those with eyes to see it. And we're told that actually no one recognized the significance of what Jesus was doing, not even Jesus' disciples, until much later on. Jesus finds a young donkey and he rides into town on this donkey. Now, it's really interesting. In the past, I've never really thought of Jesus as doing things that intentionally, which is really dumb. I should have. Um, I, I just kind of would read the Gospels and think, oh, okay, it's what Jesus happened to do. And amazingly, that was the fulfillment of a prophecy. Um, but as you read John, you realize that Jesus was, I mean, obviously he's God, but Jesus was very intentional in everything that he does. Uh, every leader is very intentional about what they wear, how they arrive, what they say. Everything they do is making a statement. Um, and that's what Jesus does. When Jesus does things, he, do, he, he does them very intentionally uh, to make a statement. So Jesus intentionally chose to heal people on the Sabbath, right? Now, he could have picked any other six days to heal the man uh, who was blind or, or even to heal the man who was um, paralyzed. But he chooses the Sabbath. Why does he choose that day? Well, because he's making a statement. I'm working just as my father is working to bring about restoration, the Sabbath rest of the world. Well, in the same way, Jesus intentionally chooses to ride in on a donkey. And so we don't miss the significance. John actually reminds us that this is a fulfillment of a prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Now, this quotation from Zechariah 9.9 is all about Zion's king, who will bring salvation to Israel. So Jesus is making a clear political statement here as he hops on the donkey and comes into Jerusalem. He's saying, I am the promised king of Zion from Zechariah chapter 9, who has come to bring salvation. But one of the really interesting things when you read Zechariah 9 is that this is not an image of a king who's come to bring war. It's an image of a king who's come to bring peace. Uh, I've heard before, in ancient times, what you rode uh, as a leader made a statement. If you rode into the city on a horse, it meant that you were preparing for, for war. Uh, but if you rode into the city on a donkey, it, mean, it meant that now was a time of peace. It's probably because no one charged down the battlefield riding a donkey. Uh, and, and that's actually what we see in Zechariah chapter 9. Uh, in the very next verse that was quoted by John, after that we read, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. See, Jesus is making this claim to be king, the promised king of Zechariah 9, but he's not the military king, the, the political king who's going to overthrow the Romans that, that all the crowd wants. And, and he's not the sort of king that the crowd is welcoming. Now, he's come to bring peace, not just to Israel, but to the whole world and to rule over the whole world. Just not the way that Israel wants. He's going to do it by dying on a cross. And really, that's what John is preparing for us in this chapter. He wants us to see Jesus as the Messiah. He is the king, and he has come to save. But they are very different categories to what we think they are. He's a very different Messiah to the one that we're thinking of, to the one that we want. He's a very different savior. He's a Messiah who's come to die. And over the next few episodes, as we unpack these next few chapters, we'll see how radically that actually shapes our discipleship of this king. Now, going back to Mary for a second, just as we think about discipleship, 
I actually think Mary's actions of pouring that expensive perfume on Jesus' feet and then wiping them with her hair, it gives us an example of what true discipleship looks like. As I said before, it was costly. The perfume was worth about a year's wages. It's dropping 60 grand on Jesus' feet. And it was humbling. She wiped his feet with her hair. And I think those two ideas of costly and humbling discipleship are important. They get picked up in the next few chapters in the Upper Room Discourse. But they actually only make sense when we understand what sort of a king Jesus is and what sort of a salvation he's come to bring. See, what motivates costly discipleship? Well, it's the cost that Jesus bore on the cross. And what motivates humiliating discipleship? Well, it's the humiliation that Jesus bore on the cross. And so Mary gives us this quick snapshot of cross-shaped living And that picture will be unpacked more and more in the next few chapters. And we'll look at that in the next few episodes. But for now, that's John chapter 12, verses 1 to 16. Okay, well, I want to continue now on this theme of rulers and leadership. And I thought it would be good to chat a bit about what's been happening in Australian politics the last few weeks and really for the last eight years or so. Now, uh, for my listeners who don't live in Australia, first of all, big shout out to all of you, uh, to those who live in the US or the UK and or South Africa uh, who listen to this podcast. Um, yeah, I've started looking at some of the data of the podcast and was surprised to see there's, there's people from overseas listening. So huge privilege to have you guys listening. I hope uh, you're getting a lot out of this podcast. Anyway, uh, for those of you who are from overseas, you might not have heard that Australia is going through a bit of a weird time in our politics at the moment. Um, Our economy is strong, we're pretty safe and secure, we're not in any wars or anything like that. Nothing really bad is happening. And yet for the past eight years, we've had four different prime ministers and not one of them has served a full term. Uh, So a bit of background, back in 2008, Prime Minister Kevin Rudd was voted out in a party room coup and replaced by his deputy, Julia Gillard. Now, for those in the US who don't know how the Australian political system or Westminster system works, uh, or doesn't work for that matter, Um, we vote parties into government and the leader of the party is the Prime Minister. And what that means is if the party votes to change leaders, then the Prime Minister is changed uh, without ever even calling a general election. Now, in the past, it seemed pretty extreme to vote out a sitting Prime Minister from from office. You you might call it the sort of nuclear option, Uh, but now it's kind of become par for the course. So um, Rudd was voted out and Gillard was put in, and then Gillard was voted out and Rudd came back into power for three months until a general election was called and that party lost because, you know, they kept on kicking out their leaders. And then Tony Abbott from the other party, the Conservative Liberal Party, he was made Prime Minister. Uh, Tony Abbott was then voted out by his own party and replaced by a new leader, Malcolm Turnbull, who became our Prime Minister until a couple of weeks ago. And then a couple of weeks ago, Malcolm Turnbull was voted out and replaced by Scott Morrison. Uh, So that means since 2008, uh, it's been, in terms of our Prime Ministers, Rudd, Gillard, Rudd, Abbott, Turnbull, Morrison. And not one of them have served a full term. So we've been called the coup capital of the world, Uh, And our politics has been likened to a really, really bad episode of Game of Thrones. Italian politics has got nothing on us. And I thought that, you know, since all this has happened, 
Now, that's a bit depressing. Uh, It wouldn't hurt for us to ask what Christians should think about all of this. And more generally, what what should our attitude to politics be? What should our attitude to government be? Especially since we've been looking at how Jesus is such a different leader uh, to the leaders of this world and offers such a, a, a different salvation. Um, what, what should our attitude be to the governments of this world that rule over us? Uh, three things that I wanted us to think about and to say from the Bible. Three things the Bible says. Number one, we should subject ourselves to the government. Number two, we should pray for the government. And number three, we should definitely not put our trust in the government. So let me just take you through these things. The Bible says that, first of all, in terms of our attitude to the government, we should subject ourselves to those in government. We should be subject to them. Um, In an amazing moment of God's sovereignty, the passage that I was set to preach on at church uh, after all this happened with Scott Morrison was Romans chapter 13. And if you don't know Romans 13, it's really all about what a Christian's attitude should be to those in government. And it's really, really interesting because I don't think it's what you would come up with yourself if you were just asked this without looking at the Bible. It's one of the awesome things about putting yourself under the authority of the Bible. You're constantly surprised and sometimes rebuked. Um, So let me read to you what Paul says in Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Paul says, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Now, this... This is a massive statement, uh, and it runs 100% against the thinking of today, okay? It is insanely counter-cultural. It's also the exact outworking of the gospel message. So Romans 13 comes in a section that's all about rational worship of God, uh, which is a response and outworking of the mercy of God, that is, the gospel message. This is what Paul says at the start of Romans 12. In other words, we should submit to our governing authorities Because of the gospel, in light of the gospel. So why does the gospel mean that we should submit to our governing authorities? Well, if we go back to Romans chapter 1, what's our problem? Our problem is that we're rebels. Okay, We've all rebelled against God's good rule and his authority, and we've gone our own way. And because of our rebellion, we all face death. We face wrath. Um, But God, in his mercy, sends Jesus to take the punishment for our sins. And that means that now, if we trust in Jesus, we can be declared justified. Okay, that's Romans chapters 1 to 4. But this gospel salvation also means gospel transformation for our lives once we trust in Jesus. So we're told to no longer live as that old rebellious person, that that person has been put to death with Christ on the cross. Uh, Instead, we're to live as the new person, the person that is now in Christ. And so what does that look like? Well, it means submitting to God as our new master, obeying his rule, not following the desires of the flesh, but rather the mindset of the spirit. That's Romans chapters 5 to 8. In other words, a Christian is a rebel who's been saved from their sin and now seeks to submit every aspect of their life to God's good rule. And so Paul says, okay, if that's true, then part of you not being a rebel, part of you submitting to God's authority is submitting to those in authority over you, and in particular, to those in government. Why? Because Paul says that no authority exists except the authority that God has established. In other words, look, God is in charge And so if there's any authority in the world that exists, it's because he put it there. 
And part of respecting and submitting to God's authority means respecting and submitting to our government's authority because that's been established by God. Now, at this point, everyone plays the Hitler card. They say, what about Hitler? You know, was Bonhoeffer wrong to plot to assassinate Hitler? Did God really establish Hitler's authority? Uh, It reminds me of Godwin's Law. I don't know if you've heard of Godwin's Law. You should Google it. Uh, It it says that an online discussion grows longer. As an online discussion grows longer, the probability of a comparison involving Hitler approaches one. Uh, Well, in Romans 13, the probability of a comparison involving Hitler will always reach one. It's always the question. Now, It is a fair question. I'm not saying it's not a fair question. And there are some good things to say, and commentaries have spilled a lot of ink on that question. But the problem is, is that Hitler isn't our ruler right now. Scott Morrison is our ruler in Australia, or Theresa May in England, or, you know, it might come as some surprise to Democrats in America, but Hitler isn't your ruler right now. Donald Trump is not Hitler. Um, And the danger is, is that we, we spend our whole time talking about Hitler And we forget that Paul's actually talking about the government that we are under. Um, So before asking about Hitler, we need to ask about our own government. Now, I'm not trying to dodge that question. I'm just trying to make sure that we don't dodge letting God's word speak into our situation and our lives. We need to first ask, before we create any hypotheticals, what does it actually mean for me to submit to my government, the one that is in charge of me right now? Uh, What I will say, however is that the only time that I can see in the Bible when it's okay not to submit to the government is when they ask you to directly disobey God. Uh, And that's what we see in the book of Daniel. You know, their homeland has been conquered, their people killed, they've been dragged off into exile. But Daniel and his friends, Daniel and his friends, they they still submit to Nebuchadnezzar's government. Uh, The only time they refuse is when they're called on to directly disobey God. Um, And what's, what's interesting is actually how they refuse uh, to obey Nebuchadnezzar, you know. So he says you've got to bow down to this idol or, you know, you can only pray to the king. Um, What do they do when they're told that? Well, they don't see this as a sign that it's okay to start plotting the overthrow of the government. You know, they don't fight back and break out into a chorus of one day more from Les Mis. No, they, they simply refuse, humbly refuse to obey the command that will go against what God says And then they humbly accept the consequences, which for them was the death penalty. And they didn't resist that. Um, And so I I find that really interesting because it means even in their refusal to obey, they still respect and submit to the authority over them. And and this is what Paul says in, in Romans chapter 13, verse 2. He says, consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Now, in in a liberal democracy like ours, that doesn't mean you can't criticise the government. It doesn't even mean you can't work at getting an an alternative government elected at the next election. That's not rebellion, that's just democracy. That's how our system works. It's, It's perfectly within the law. However, once someone has been elected in a democracy, we must recognise and submit to that authority even if it isn't the person we voted for, even if we think they are really, really, really bad for our country, we should submit to them because they are the authority that God has established. You know, it was interesting watching the US election a few years ago um, and, and watching what happened after 
President Trump was elected. You know, the nation, half, or half the nation anyway, kind of went into meltdown. There were riots in the street and everything. And people were holding signs and, and chanting, not my president, not my president. And that is something that Christians must never do. Because like it or not, that authority has been established by God. So by all means, if you feel passionately about it and you don't like President Trump, you can work to get him voted out in the next election if you want. That's, that's perfectly within the rights, your, your rights and the system of democracy in America. But while he's the president, you have to submit to him and you have to respect his authority. That's what Paul says. And, and what this really means for all of us is that Christians shouldn't ever try to establish a separate kingdom or nation. You know, we can fall into the trap of thinking that since Jesus is our king and we belong to the kingdom of God, well, then we have absolutely no allegiance to the kingdoms of this world. You know, that they're not our kingdom. They're not our leaders, not my president, that sort of thing, because Jesus is my king. And so you, you do have Christians thinking today, oh, well, we should be working towards setting up an alternative kingdom here on earth. And that brings us back to John 13. Because the kingdom that Jesus establishes is not the sort of kingdom that most people seek after and fight for. It's not a kingdom of this world, as Jesus will tell Pilate later on in John's gospel. He didn't come to establish a political kingdom that would rival the Roman government of the day. Even Jesus submitted to the Roman government of the day. And so it's not our task to work towards a political kingdom that rivals the secular government of the day. In fact, Paul says that the secular government of today has been established by God. And three times in Romans 13, they're described as God's servant. Now, they might not know that they're God's servant. They, they might not even believe in God. But they are servants of God. And because of that, our job is to submit to their authority. Uh, another thing that this means for us is that Christians aren't above the law. Uh, so Paul says in Romans 13 verse 4, for the one in authority is God's servant, there's that phrase again, is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. Okay, they're God's servants. They are agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. That's what Paul says. See, we can fall into the trap again of thinking, well, Jesus is my king and we follow his laws. And so, yeah, the laws of this land, they don't really apply to me. I don't need to worry about them that much because I belong to Jesus and his kingdom instead. Uh, and so people kind of start thinking, oh, well, there's one law for the non-Christians, but I'm a Christian. I've only got one law for me. It's different. That's totally wrong. Paul says that, the, that God has given the government of the land the authority to punish wrongdoers. They're described as agents of wrath. They've been given the sword. And so Christians aren't above the law. We have to obey the law. Again, the only time we, we disobey and then we do it respectfully and humbly and we still submit to the government, but the only time we disobey the laws of this land is when they call on us to actively disobey God's laws. But other than that, Christians aren't above the law. I think we see the horrible consequences of this wrong thinking with the Royal Commission uh, that's been happening in Australia recently into, into institutional response to child sex abuse. You know, and, and this isn't just in Australia. There's so many churches around the world that covered up the abuse that was happening. They moved on priests or moved on ministers after it happened. They, they never reported it to the police. Why? These people broke the law. They did a horrible, horrible thing. They should have been held accountable for what they did. Why didn't churches call the police, get them thrown into prison? 
It was because they thought they were above the law. They thought the law doesn't apply to us. We're the church. And they probably thought, oh, it'll be damaging to the church if we get the police involved. Better to deal with it internally. But Christians aren't above the law. We're subject to the government and to their sword. They're agents of God's wrath. And so if we do something wrong, we deserve to be punished. We don't get away with it just because we're in Jesus' kingdom. So Christians aren't above the law. It also means, however, that Christians are under the protection of the law. I think this is really important as well. Because what it means is is that if someone is doing something illegal, you should get the police involved. Sometimes Christians have a weird idea, and I think it comes from... Yeah, it probably comes from a right place. It comes from a desire to be gracious and, and forgiving. And so we think, oh, well, people probably shouldn't be thrown into prison. People probably shouldn't be punished. Let's just be forgiving and, and, and you know, forget about it and let it all go. Um, well, first of all, that's a complete misunderstanding of the forgiveness that Jesus bought for us because that forgiveness was incredibly costly and he took our punishment for us. God never just let something go. But secondly... We should be totally fine uh, with people who do the wrong thing being punished and thrown into prison. Um, We should be totally fine with calling the police and getting them involved because they are agents of God's wrath. God has instituted the government. He has put them there exactly for this purpose, to punish wrongdoers for the good of our society. So that means if, 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 if you see something illegal at church, you don't just tell your pastor, you call the police. Um, if, a, if a Christian woman is being abused by her husband at home, she should call the police. It's, it's not only okay, it's good to get the police involved because God has put them in charge to punish wrongdoers. He's given us the police as a sword of the state to bring punishment on wrongdoers. So that's just something to think about in terms of how we should think about law and order as well. Um, Now, so much more that we could say on this, but one more thing to notice about Romans 13, and that's in verse 7. Give to everyone what you owe. If you owe them taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honour, then honour. And I think this is where we as Australians really fall down. Um, Not just on paying taxes, although there's a lot of people who are dodging taxes or, um, you know, cheating Centrelink or whatever it is to try and get more money and you should stop that Um, but also about respect Um, our culture in Australia I think it's a bit different in America um, but our culture in Australia is we have absolutely no respect for politicians zero Um, now you might think that well yeah our politicians don't really deserve our respect at the moment I mean look at them they're they're a bit hopeless Um, But, you know, to be honest, I don't think we really had respect for them even before this whole musical chairs game that's been going on in Canberra. Um, But you know what? In the end, it doesn't even matter. It doesn't matter if our politicians don't earn our respect. We, We don't respect them because they're respectful. We don't wait till they earn our respect. Our leader, uh, we, we should respect our leader, um, not because of who they are as a person, but because of God. We respect them because their position has been given to them by God. And I think, I actually think this is the biggest challenge for us. Um, It's a huge challenge for us, especially in this climate of, you know, a revolving door of leaders. 
regardless, we still need to show respect to our leaders. We need to think about the way that we talk about our politicians, uh, how we talk about them to other people. We need to think about the way that we think about them, uh, the way we speak to them or about them. Um, They have been put in government uh, by God. They are God's servants, and so they deserve our respect. So that's the, the other two I'm going to now talk about. We'll go a lot quicker. But the first, the first thing to say is that we should respect and subject ourselves to those in government. But the second thing I wanted to say about our attitude to the government of today is that we also should pray for them. Um, again, it was sort of a moment of divine providence. I was really surprised. I've been reading in my quiet time uh, from 1 Timothy, and the day after the leadership challenge, uh, I got up to 1 Timothy chapter 2. I urge them, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. And um, I was reminded, here's, here's a direct command from God. Pray for those in government. I mean, do you do that? Do you do, you do that regularly? Is that a, a regular part of your, your quiet time and your prayer life, to pray for those in government? Does your church do it regularly when it has prayer time at church, do you pray for your leaders? I hope so, because the Holy Spirit says that you should. It's a direct command. We're not often given many prayer points by the Bible, but here's one. Here's a prayer point. Pray for those in government. But what's really important is understanding why. Why pray for government in particular? What's so special about them? And I think this is the bit that most people forget or overlook. Um, We're told that we should do it so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Um, We should do it because the government can affect whether we can live godly and holy lives. See, governments affect the freedom that we have to worship God. They affect the good order of our society. And so what Christians should want from their government more than anything else is stability. We want a stable government that will allow for a peaceful and quiet society so that we can get on with worshiping God and obeying him. That's what we want from our government. Really, we just want to make sure that we can live a peaceful life so we can obey God. That's why we pray for them. That's what we pray for them. And in verse 3, Paul really helps us here. He says, This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to come to a knowledge of the truth. So here's the second reason. Pray for our government so that we have a peaceful and quiet society so that we can spread the good news of Jesus. We need a stable society so that we can freely and easily proclaim the gospel. And when we, when we don't have that, when we're limited in our proclamation of the gospel, people can't hear the truth. People can't come to a knowledge of the truth and be saved. So we need to pray for our government so that we live in a stable society, so that the gospel can go out and so that we, we can live our lives according to the way that God calls us to. So what have we seen? Respect and submit to the government. Pray for the government. Thirdly, Yes, do that, but never, ever put your trust in the government. Uh, And and this is where I want to go back to Psalm 118 uh, that we looked at before, uh, because this psalm is talking about how the Lord will save. And in verse, uh, verse 8 and 9, we read, It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in humans. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. So just as we saw that we shouldn't try to set up our own little alternative kingdom on earth, we should also never, ever put our hope or faith in the governments of this world. That will just always lead to disappointment. 
And again, this brings us back to what we looked at in John 13, because Jesus is a very different type of king. He hasn't come to bring a military revolution. He hasn't come to bring a political reform package or a social justice movement or a hashtag trend. That's, that's not his agenda. And that means it's not our agenda either. I'm not saying you can't ever get involved in politics or hashtagging, but that's not actually how we're going to bring about change in this world. We shouldn't put our trust in princes. The world won't be saved through politics. And yet, you know, one thing I've really noticed is that as our culture moves further and further away from God, this is exactly what people begin to believe. See, why is it? It's really weird. I wonder if you've ever asked yourself this. Why is it that we put so much stock in our politicians these days? You know, why does our news coverage, uh, why is our news coverage dominated by what our leaders are doing or not doing or or said that they will be doing? Why is so much money poured into elections and, and so much hatred and vitriol stirred up between people when they have different political views? I mean, I mean, it's so odd because especially for people in Australia like me, you know, A change in a leader has pretty much no impact on my day-to-day life. You know, I feel like a change in my local councillor will probably have more impact on my life because they'll decide whether our local park gets a new swing set for my kids or not. You know, for me, that's that's real change. Not not to diminish the role of the government, but we, we seem to get really, really fired up about changing the leader and nothing really ever seems to change that much. So why do we care about politics so much? Why are we so obsessed with politics? And the reason is, is because if you take God out of the equation, well, where does all the power lie? It lies with the state. They become our only hope. It's why atheistic societies so often become totalitarian. Because where where do you put your hope? Where do you put your hope to see the world change, to see things get better? Where is the power if there's no God? Well, you can only then put your hope in princes, in the state. And yet, time and time again, they'll prove how hopeless they really are. See, like us, leaders, rulers of this world are human which means they're limited in what they can do. They can't actually fix every problem. It's why so little changes, no matter who the leader is, and yet leaders feel compelled to lie to us and pretend that they're God who can change everything because otherwise we won't vote for them because we think they are God and we've put all of our hope in them. They're they're human. They're limited. And like us, they're sinners, which means they will fail us from time to time. In fact, they'll fail us often. They won't keep their promises. They'll, be, they'll show themselves to be morally corrupt. They'll act out of pride and self-interest. We shouldn't be surprised at this. They're sinners like us. And so we shouldn't put our hope in them either. You know, when, um, when Prime Minister Tony Abbott was kicked out of office, he, he gave a speech that I thought was, was, act, was particularly perceptive. It was, a, it was a really good speech, I thought. Um, he didn't actually live up to the speech in the end because he promised he, he wouldn't try and usurp Malcolm Turnbull, which is exactly what he did. But um, leaders are, are flawed. Leaders are, are sinners, like I said. But let me read to you what, what he said in this speech. It was, I, felt, I felt it was really perceptive. This is what he said. He said, The nature of politics has changed in the past decade. We have more polls and more commentary than ever before, mostly sour, bitter character assassination. Poll-driven panic has produced a, revo- a revolving door prime ministership which can't be good for our country, and a febrile media culture has, de- has developed that rewards treachery. 
Of course, the government wasn't perfect. We have been a government of men and women, not a government of gods walking upon the earth. Few of us, after all, entirely measure up to expectations. And I think that is largely what's wrong with politics today. People think that we have a government of gods walking upon the earth. And when these gods disappoint us, as of course they will because they're not God, we're outraged and we demand a new government or a new set of gods to make our world a better place. The Psalm 118 says, Do not put your trust in princes. It is the Lord who will save. And John 13 reminds us that our king is a very different king to the kings of this world. See, he will bring about true peace. He will establish a perfect kingdom of justice and righteousness. He will put an end to all the suffering and pain, but he's not going to achieve it through revolution or politics or movements. He achieves it through an inglorious cross. And so we who follow him, we need to choose not to put our hope in the politics of this world, but in the power of the cross. We put our hope in King Jesus, who saves us from our sins and ushers in a new world when he returns, a world free from suffering, sin and death. Well, that brings us to an end, but I just want to finish on a quick signs of grace. And I thought, let's stick with this theme of politics. Uh, It would be good to remember that whilst here in Australia we have had four different PMs in eight years, Not one drop of blood has been spilt in the process. And as weak as it might seem at times, I'm very, very thankful to God for our democratic system here in Australia. It is a great gift and it's a wonderful sign of God's grace to this country. And, you know, uh, in my church, uh, I'm in a very multicultural area and we get a lot of migrants coming to our shores. And some of these migrants are fleeing from places that, that don't enjoy such a stable and secure uh, system of government where, the, where the, the rule of law actually exists um, and people do feel safe and Christians can live that quiet, godly life and the gospel can spread. Um, and, and when you're reminded of that, you see how incredibly gracious God has been to us in Australia. We whinge a lot about our politics And yes, politicians will disappoint us, but God is incredibly gracious to us in the government that we have. Government is a wonderful gift from God. It secures order in our society. And, you know, um, looking at the past decade at what's happened in the Middle East, you're you're reminded of what, what a place looks like without order. You know, it's terrifying. It's lawless. And so, yeah, despite how ridiculous our current political climate might seem, I think our government in Australia is a wonderful sign of God's grace to us in the world. And it's something we should be thankful for. And it's something I'm very thankful for. Well, that brings us to an end uh, for this episode. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you did enjoy it, make sure uh, that you like us on Facebook um, and that you share this podcast. Please do share on social media. Let your friends know about it. Uh, Let your church know about it. Maybe you could put it on your church's Facebook page or or a Christian group that you have on Facebook uh, or whatever other way that you can. Uh, We'd love to get the word out because we want to see more and more people growing in God's word. And also, don't forget to subscribe if you haven't subscribed yet. My name's Tom Abib, and you've been listening to The Word Grows. <laughs>